0: You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 7, Knowledge. One of the roles that a social movement plays within civil society is that it's a location to create knowledge. Now, knowledge means a lot of different things. And in this episode, when I talk about formal knowledge, I'm mostly referring to the formal education system that exists in Canada in the public system. Of course, there are many Canadians who were not educated in Canada's public school system, whether they were educated in another country or in the private system or they were homeschooled. But so much of what we understand knowledge to be in Canada flows from what our governments have determined is necessary to be taught through the public education system. The public education system stands as this idealized set of what we want citizens to know and because it holds that place it's an important location for struggle and it's an important location for understanding how certain kinds of knowledge becomes privileged over others. A lot of Canada's economy and its workforce and how our society is organized flows from this school system regardless of whether or not everybody actually went to it. But enough about formal knowledge production for now. Let's talk about knowledge and social movements. The creation, generation, dissemination, and production of knowledge is a key part of what a social movement does. It's kind of unseen. It's something that maybe we would say education or awareness, but the actual construction of knowledge, of what becomes Feminist understanding of the world and of th- the changes that we need to see in the world, we don't talk about that very often. When I was conceiving Take Back the Fight, I thought that the knowledge chapter was going to be the first one. Not because I think knowledge is the most important, but I was imagining it as being the real foundation on which we would build debates and leadership and ways of knowing and ways of doing things and whatever. But through the process of editing, it made far more sense to talk first about debates because, of course, everybody enters discussion spaces with some level of knowledge. Everyone has either lived experience or and studied or and read about something, obviously. And so there's always knowledge being brought into these spaces, and then it's through debate that new knowledge can be created. And so this is why... Knowledge takes a little bit of time to show up in in the book, even though as I was thinking it through, it would form the foundation on which social movements could be built. The way that I understand knowledge in this context is the production of understandings, of ways of doing things, of know-how, of analysis that comes from both the theory and practice of social activism. And so to be more concrete, that might be knowledge about a specific task, uh, how to organize an event, how to book rooms, and how to convince people to come. That also is knowledge about how to think through certain public policies. And so knowledge allows us to understand why this public policy might be better than that one. Knowledge also allows us to anticipate when there might be things coming that we will have to resist. So the knowledge that governments can change policies overnight, that's, that's something you have to learn. Uh, because without knowing that, you might think that once something's in the law, it's in the law forever and people respect the law. You learn through interactions with the police, uh, interactions with other social services or child services or interactions with schools and the healthcare system, all of the ways that you have to protect yourself and you have to protect your community. That kind of knowledge is so important and is so special because it allows for strategies to then be built around that knowledge when we think through fixing the issues that we know are incorrect. And so if we conceive of, as I talked in the last episode, the debate part having happened already. The knowledge is the result of the debates. And then once we have that knowledge, what do we do with it? Are we able to explain it to someone who's not involved in our social movements? Are we able to convince someone on live television about what we're trying to put forward as being fact or truth? Are we able to use our knowledge to then advance certain campaigns or strategize in a certain way that will allow us to be as successful or as powerful as possible? All of these things are how we might use knowledge. And in this episode, I'm going to explore how Canada's racist and colonial public education system sets us up for a lifetime of unlearning. How important it is for feminists to propagate feminist knowledge, to generate feminist knowledge, and to put that knowledge into practice in our movements. And finally, what happens when there is no movement location for us to discuss what we know, and what we know to be wrong, and what we know to be a crisis, to then orient ourselves towards changing those issues. Mainstream education in Canada ostensibly exists to teach us how to read, how to write, how to do math, and how to be good citizens to go on into a workplace and be productive units of society. The moment we finish that formal schooling, whether or not that's after high school or college or university whether or not we're finished within 12 years or 25, whether or not we go back and get back into formal education, this is still from which so many of us start. After you finish the formal learning, you find yourself working for the rest of your life, unlearning all of the things that you learned. Knowledge in Canada that is formal and that is taught through institutions like public schools or colleges and universities is rooted in Canada's colonial past and its colonial present. Everything about how formal education in Canada happens has a direct connection to the racist and colonial creation of the school system that established modern Canada. And you can still see the impacts of that very clearly with the astronomical suspension rates of black children, especially black boys within public education systems, or desistance rates, how many kids are dropping out who are not white. You can see this uh, in curriculum and in what's missing in curriculum. And I write about this in Take Back the Fight. And so here are my words. Canada's modern school system was founded in the mid-1800s. The first teacher's college was established by Egerton Ryerson, called the Normal School. Ryerson was seen as a modern voice in the creation of a school system that was secular, that wouldn't force religious texts onto students. Around the same time, the Bego Report of 1842 established the foundation of the residential school system. In 1847, Ryerson was asked to write a report about creating the school system and ensure that white and Indigenous children would not be educated together. Ryerson wrote... It is a fact established by numerous experiments that the North American Indian cannot be civilized or preserved in a state of civilization, including the habits of industry and sobriety, except in connection with, if not by the influence of, not only religious instruction and sentiment, but of religious feeling. I'll pause here. It's very interesting that, that, that he was known for creating a secular school system except when it came to Indigenous children, which had to be an expressly religious school system. So right from the basis, you can see that discrimination in Canada playing such a big role. I go on. His words provided the blueprint for the system. The racism that created residential schools also created what was de facto the white school system. This system has evolved over more than a century to be the public school system, but racism can still be seen throughout. From curriculum to dropout rates that are higher among black students, to racist comments made by teachers, to a gap that persists in funding indigenous students less than non-indigenous students, the ways in which white supremacy, sexism, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia exist within Canada's public education system is layered, complex, and apparent. If you look at data that compares the experience of white students with that of non-white students, or listen to non-white students' experiences with this school system. I think it's really important to start there because that is the foundation of the public school system in Canada. Yes, a century has passed, a century and a half has passed since the creation of the system, but the system has not changed all that much. And so it means that when we look at the way that public education creates and delivers and and tests us on knowledge, it is still very white-centric and it is still very colonial. I go on to write, Our most formative years are spent in the classroom with a mainstream and colonial curriculum that is not able to give us the knowledge that we need to confront the assumptions contained within it. And by the time we're old enough for decritical thought, we're already on a treadmill towards becoming something. A physiotherapist, a mechanic, a website builder, a teacher. And our only study time must be dedicated to the field that we found ourselves in to be as successful as we can be. If we were educated in public school in Canada we have been taught certain truths that uphold and maintain Canada as a white colonial nation. And feminism and sexism are woven into the curriculum in very pernicious ways. And sometimes those ways are obvious. Sometimes they're they're less obvious and, and they come through messages that you receive and it takes years to undo those messages. But the school system does not set us up to be able to find ourselves outside of it, done our last years of high school and say, okay, now I'm going to take on the state because I now have the tools to be able to understand how power operates in Canada. And I am ready to challenge that power. That is not how it works. And If you're lucky enough to then go on to higher education where you can learn some of these things either through life experience or through more targeted kinds of formal knowledge. But for the vast majority of people, there is no moment where you're able to then confront what you've learned and go in a different direction from the education, the knowledge that you've built so far. But the options that are available to us to continue education outside of the demands of adult education or more credentials and tuition fees, they get very limited. As we get older, there's very few locations for us to just learn about things, especially learn about radical politics. A lot of us might find ourselves on our own. And you might be okay. You might be fine. A lot of people are fine. But you also might not be fine. You might turn to Facebook and try and have Facebook make sense of the world for you. And we can see the problems inherent in that. When some people turn to Facebook to explain capitalism, are they going to stumble upon Marx? Are they going to stumble upon socialist reading clubs? Or are they going to stumble upon conspiracy theories that explain away why everything is so bad, but does so by letting everyone in power actually off the hook? The location where we spend most of our time is work. And sure, we develop specialized knowledge based on the jobs that we hold. We become experts in the things that we do every single day. And that knowledge is really important. And that knowledge needs to form the basis of how our organizations, our businesses, our grocery stores, our doctor's offices, or whatever are operating. That's the theory behind workers' power and building workers' power within the workplace. But outside the workplace, Where do people go to learn about feminism? Where do people go to learn about racism? Sure, you can experience sexism and you can experience racist attacks, but where do you go to develop the analysis that will allow you to understand what is a path to social action and a path to changing the status quo and what is going to be a dead end? This is the work that social movements must play social movements must create spaces for people to come and get knowledge to learn about whatever it is the social movement is fighting for. I think about my time on campus and about how student clubs and other service groups always fought for offices to be able to have a permanent space to welcome people whenever they had a question about something. The most obvious example of this for feminism are centers for women and trans people, which exist pretty much on every higher education campus in Canada. And they're really critical locations. It doesn't matter what program you're in. It doesn't matter what year you're in. You can walk into your local women's center and say, uh, I don't know about something. And someone might be there and can not only help you with that, but can probably even pass you a book because a lot of these spaces have years old libraries as well. That's really critical. And so thinking about outside of those spaces, where does your average grocery clerk or civil engineer or lawyer get feminist knowledge? Is there a drop-in center in your town where you can just say, I want to learn about misogyny in politics? Or is it more likely that the way you'll learn about misogyny in politics is try to run for town council and then experience it directly? In Take Back the Fight, I quote 10,000 Roses, Judy Rebick's book that details the history of the women's movement in Canada. And I quote Norma Scarborough from the Canadian Abortion Rights Action League. Norma says this, quote, When feminist groups like NAC weren't paying attention enough to abortion, we would do what we did best, which was education. Then when the issue came to public attention, a lot of people knew what they were talking about, unquote. She admits that she didn't think that this was the kind of work that had much pizzazz as compared to what others in the feminist movement were up to. But, quote, the basic quiet stuff needed to get done, but making the noise was what really got things going. I really love that quote from Norma Scarborough. It is exactly what social movements do in the interim moments between flashpoints. And so you have NAC, a national Uh, the National Action Committee on the Status of Women Canada, a national women's organization. And Scarborough's there saying, look, when NAC wasn't talking about abortion, abortion rights groups were there to do that work. They were there to do the education. They were there to answer a phone call when someone said, hey, I want to get involved in abortion activism that kind of maintenance work is so important because it it means that there's always somebody there's always a group of somebodies who are thinking about this who are who are paying attention to what's happening in politics, who can respond and to explain what's happening in politics and why we should be worried or why we should celebrate something. And when those flashpoints happen, there's already a group of people who are ready to go and ready with the arguments and the information that is necessary to do rapid education. Right? You can think of social movement organizing kind of like you know five steps forward and two steps down not necessarily back but maybe down and it's a little less exciting and there's a lot more of the administrative or the the day-to-day work of maintaining something and 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 when you're when you're in those moments where you're going down You have to get ready for those important moments, those flashpoint moments when you can actually reach a lot of people because you might have a captive media audience. You might have um, a, a bill that you're organizing around or some sort of showdown with a minister that is going to radicalize people very quickly in a way that is not necessarily possible when there's nothing happening within mainstream discussion on your issue. And in those quiet moments, social movement organizations can create knowledge and disseminate knowledge to average people. And they do this through teach-ins and workshops and presentations. They do this through pamphlets. And now, of course, this was not the case in the time that uh, Norma Scarborough is talking about, but websites and social media, the, the kind of thing that that is is—it is a slog and it's not necessarily for everybody. But it's really, really important because it gives average people a location to unlearn, to learn something new, to sharpen their skills, and really importantly, find people to help them through this. I don't know how much studying you've done on your own, and I certainly have done a lot of studying on my own. But when I have the opportunity to talk through a text that I've just read, I find it is so much more helpful and so much more clarifying, especially if the text is really dense and difficult to read. But not just that, you also create friendships around the table of people who you're reading these texts with. When you have that knowledge put down into a book or put down onto a pamphlet, into a website, when that knowledge is there and you can give it to someone else and that someone else can get together with other people and discuss the implications of what the pamphlet or the book or the website or the movie says, then you're creating knowledge. And that knowledge becomes very, very powerful. One of the things that in the digital age has happened is that sometimes knowledge gets created and then disseminated and then it gets kind of launched into a different space that feminists do not control. And in Take Back the Fight, I examine how this happened with trigger warnings, originally something that appeared in feminist blogs and in progressive and feminist course curricula in a reaction or response to this rise in clickbait, where you can find an article that says, like, Five happy goats running down a meadow lane and then you click on the article and actually like the story is really violent and you're totally taken aback by what's inside of it. That was very common on the internet, right? Clickbait headlines that didn't exactly say what was in the article. And so content warnings pop up as saying just an FYI, this is what's going to be written in uh, this blog post or in this article or Hey, you're preparing for the semester. Here's your syllabus, and just an FYI: this movie or this discussion is going to is going to contain these themes. Like, prepare yourself, or whatever. That feminist knowledge was really, really important. It created a discussion around. What a trigger actually is and is a trigger something that we could ever avoid? There was a very rich debate among feminists around are these are these things useful or are they not useful? Are they context dependent or not? Is it censorship or is it uh, just giving people more information for what they need? The problem was that without a really strong feminist movement, knowledge like that was easily taken by the far right and completely spun into different ways that the, the warnings had never been intended to be used in the way that they were used. And so on campus, they often became used as a rallying cry for right wing students to oppose, I don't know, being given a heads up as if there's anything wrong with that. And... The the lack of debate space, the lack of discussion space meant that once the trigger warning thing once trigger warnings got out into the broader world there wasn't a cohesive and coherent feminist voice to be able to say wait this is what they're intended for the, the the caricature that the far right is making about trigger warnings is not what they're intended for this is actually ridiculous and and not just ridiculous this is fake this is the far right trying to take something that feminists have developed for a very specific reason um, and for a reason that's like kind like god forbid we're kind to one another and, and they're making a mockery of this. But there wasn't any organizations or groups of people who were able to have a coordinated response to say, this is a fake debate. Why are you wasting your time journalists covering trigger warnings? And when I was writing this part of the book, it was funny because it was like, you know, five years after the trigger warning hullabaloo that happened and I was like oh yeah remember that remember that remember that it was a really fascinating uh, distorted set of knowledge that that had no home that once it left the walls of the academy or the walls of a particular blogging community it became something that it never was intended to become and of course since then there's tons of other examples of this since as well the the reason to have content warnings or trigger warnings or whatever remains kind of commonplace. We went from news articles that never had a warning about the content at all to giving people a heads up about what's about to be in a segment that's now happening a lot more commonly than it was happening eight years ago. And it's it's a, an awareness and acknowledgement that there is widespread trauma and there are widespread triggers for people and just saying, hey, if you don't wanna hear this, turn off your radio for the next 20 minutes or just an FYI, prepare yourself for what's coming. And so this knowledge was created for a useful purpose but got completely distorted in this bizarre world of, what is and isn't feminism, thanks in part to the fact that the feminist movement was not able to operate in some cohesive way with cohesive and accountable spokespeople to just say, this is not what it was here for. This is not what the intention of trigger warnings ever was. And what are you doing? We we reject this. The other thing that knowledge allows us to do is it allows us to see where a movement is and are they constantly producing new kinds of knowledge or have they become stagnant? This is especially important when we're looking at white feminism and the kinds of knowledge that white feminism creates. It dovetailed a little bit with the trigger warning discussion. And in the book, I talk about how trigger warnings got ramped up into a space that I don't know if people intended them for them to be or if it was just a a strategy of university administrators who are just like, we don't want to deal with this. And so we're going to make it ridiculous. So we can then ridicule, you know, using a straw man kind of strategy to get rid of of, of trigger warnings. I quote Tressie McMillan Cottom, who's a writer and a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, who is talking about trigger warnings in the context of university spaces that are neoliberal, that are oppressive already, and that could come with a big trigger warning on every single classroom and every single course and every single hallway. And so this is what she writes. Trigger warnings make sense on platforms where troubling information can be foisted upon you without prior knowledge, as in the case of retweets. Then I write, but when you try to apply this logic to the academy, it doesn't work. And then back to Macmillan Cottam. Yet no one is arguing for trigger warnings in the routine spaces where symbolic and structural violence are acted on students on the margins. No one, to my knowledge, is affixing trigger warnings to department meetings that WASPy normative expectations may require you to code switch yourself into oblivion to participate as a full member of the group. Instead, trigger warnings are being encouraged for sites of resistance, not mechanisms of oppression. So this was where the trigger warning knowledge that had been created clashed directly with the reality that feminism remains far too white. And not that everybody who was in the trigger warning discussion or advocates of trigger warnings to be in lots of different places were all white. That's not what I'm saying. But it is definitely true, as Macmillan Cottom says, that that the spaces that that racialized people find themselves in—in in the example of, that she gives is the neoliberal university—but you can, I mean, obviously think of government or journalism or law or health, anything really, um, city hall or whatever. That these these are spaces that have endless triggers for people who aren't white, and yet the trigger warning discussion was coming from a very white-centric space. And so here you have the knowledge that has been created by feminists. It gets put out into the world, but then there's no way to refine this knowledge and to give, give better sense to this knowledge for it to exist in very clear locations, like where you might find yourself completely surprised or bowled over by something that you didn't expect was coming. And the way that feminist knowledge is still so embedded in whiteness and white feminism, this goes back to a lot of things. It goes back to the non-representation within feminist movements or the over-representation of white feminists or white feminists taking up too much space or being the ones to develop the knowledge themselves. This is, of course, when debate comes back and debate requires us to then refine and to, to to discuss and come up with better positions. But if the debate is happening in a space that is exclusive and that is majority white, then the knowledge that is produced will always be imbued with white supremacy. That's just going to be how it is. And so we need to be aware of that. Uh, what we white people, for sure, uh, need to be aware of the, the, the ways in which we perpetuate white supremacy, whether unconsciously or consciously. And sometimes it's until you apply that knowledge, do you not see how white supremacy is being perpetuated? And so, for example, a couple of years ago, news broke across Canada that, that Indigenous women were still being sterilized by medical institutions specifically in saskatchewan but then stories come out from other parts of canada and when this news broke there was two ways that you could react to it you could either be completely shocked because you've never had this experience yourself or you've never met someone who's had this experience or you can say wow that's literally what happened to me or that's literally what happened to someone who i love i suspect that the that the people who do hold prominent feminist positions in Canada were more likely to be the people who were shocked and outraged, Uh, whether they were completely shocked or just like, well, I mean, medical malpractice happens, so I'm shocked, but this isn't entirely surprising. But it meant that fighting against sterilizing Indigenous women never emerged as a key or core demand from feminists in Canada. It remained peripheral to other discussions about feminism. And I mean, there's not a whole lot of them, but it wasn't as if feminists all of a sudden came up with this united front demanding that these sterilizations stop. Partly, that goes back to the fact that Indigenous women had a very different relationship with the state and reproductive justice and sterilization than white women had. And when Indigenous women were not able to be fully involved in feminist organizing. It meant that their voices and perspectives were not part of what created feminist knowledge in this country. Now, that's the past. And we easily could say that it's the past. We're changing things now. But fighting against sterilization against Indigenous patients within these medical institutions did not emerge as the cornerstone demand when it when it first broke as news in Canada. And, you know, we're talking about a couple of years ago now. There have been other discussions since where it has become more of a prominent issue. But rooted in the white defaults in a lot of feminist organizing and a lot of feminist knowledge in Canada, there was not the instant push to say this is the issue that all feminists in this country need to unite behind. And we need to figure out what's our local context, what's happening with our local healthcare facilities, what are the experiences that people have had in our community, and how do we build a provincial and national fight back against this practice. The final thing I want to talk about on the subject of knowledge is I want to give you an example of what happens when knowledge is created in real time and that goes mainstream. And the best example, I think, is the way that Black Lives Matter was able to make anti-Black racism, the phrase anti-Black racism, go mainstream. When we say anti-Black racism, it is to identify that Black people have a disproportionate and a different relationship with racism than other races have because of the way that our system has been built. The proximity of our system to, the, to slavery and to slavery in the United States uh, and the way that global anti-Black racism exists means that there is a different experience and a different level of violence experienced by Black people than all non-white people together. And so anti-Black racism is a very, very specific and very helpful term to tease out that kind of racism from from racism that other non-white people face or experience. When you look at the history of the term anti-Black racism, it existed before 2016. Uh, You know, it was mentioned by Stephen Lewis in a report that he did on racism for the province of Ontario in the early 1990s. But when Black Lives Matter in 2015 and 16 started to talk more and more about anti-black racism specifically and naming it, there was a lot of pushback from journalists who would say, whoa, 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 like, what do you mean? Why are you saying that? Why isn't racism good enough? And through creating the spaces for journalists to learn and for average people to learn. And in a very short period of time, anti-Black racism has become a phrase that is actually totally normal. That if you search right now online, you're not going to find anti-Black racism in scare quotes. It'll be named specifically as a kind of racism that whatever the article or whatever the issue is looking at. The way that Black Lives Matter did that was they had this knowledge that they made it a priority to change the lexicon of mainstream society in the way in which they talk about racism. And they won. They totally did that. It became a normal way to refer to racism that is different and experienced by Black people within our society or within institutions or whatever. I think that there's a lot that we can learn from BLM in general. But the way that BLM creates rhetoric has been nothing short of incredible. You know, I wrote about the way that they did this with anti-Black racism in 2019. And of course, since 2019, there's been this new term that we can debate it. We can debate whether or not it's sufficient or if it could be something else. But you know what it is. And most likely, if you talk to any number of strangers, a majority of them know what it is it's defund the police. Through creating the knowledge of saying defund the police, this is possible, we can actually take the funding from police budgets and then you can talk about replace it or not replace it, like whatever. But by creating the, the the space to have defund the police be 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 knowledge that could be transmitted in a mainstream way through mainstream platforms. That is the power of a social movement. And like all knowledge, it's not enough to change anything. Doing a research report, finding statistics, creating knowledge, disseminating knowledge, none of this is enough to change anything on its own. Just like you're not going to debate somebody and win and all of a sudden your social policy changes because you are such a great debater. That's not how this works. But the creation of knowledge really is, as I said at the start of the show, that foundation from which you can grow your social movement. And so our, our, our social movements need to be oriented towards creating knowledge, disseminating knowledge, and finding feedback ways to refine that knowledge, to make sure that if the knowledge that has existed forever is oppressive, if it's racist, if it feeds into racism, even if it in, of itself is not racist, that we have ways to address those problems. One of the hopes that I have with this podcast is that I am creating some knowledge as well. So I hope that you can think of some ways in which you use knowledge or create knowledge or disseminate knowledge as part of your activism. Are you are you working with a social movement, group or club or organization or collective where creating knowledge is part of what you do? And when you create that knowledge, well, then the next question becomes what do you do with it? How do you use the knowledge to then build a strategic campaign to change someone's mind? To force a politician to change positions or to force some sort of rhetorical change within society. That's all for this episode. Take Back the Fight, the podcast, is written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Nora Loretto. The music is by me too, except this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. If you like what you hear, make sure you share it with everybody you've ever had contact with in your entire life. The podcast is funded by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. You can check out all of Harbinger's progressive shows at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. this put you in the seat, and make you nervous. Me, I'm I bring the heat to guaranteed. in my thermos.